Welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt healthcare attorney Dara Coleman. And Dara, this podcast was born out of COVID 19 to talk about the disease. But today we're going to talk about a secondary impact, I guess you might call call it, uh, that the, we're seeing, you are seeing um, from right. the disease. Right. Well, as the um, pandemic has extended, we are seeing that it's taking a toll in the mental health arena um, with our clients and in their personal lives. Um, as we're experiencing the stress ourselves, we're seeing as parents, um, colleagues are dealing with the stressors of managing their everyday lives. Um, it's affecting their mental health. And so today we've invited someone in who can give us some insight into behavioral health issues affecting the citizens of South Carolina and also beyond the borders. Yes. And so today on Taking the Pulse, we are going to talk about a tough topic, um, choices that some people may make to deal with stress, which may hurt them. So stay with us. We'll be right back for Taking the Pulse. Welcome back, everybody. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt Healthcare Attorney Daryl Coleman. And today joining us is Sarah Goldsby. She is Director of DAOTIS, that is South Carolina's Department of Alcohol and Other Drug Abuse Services. Sarah has led this agency since 2016. And during her tenure, she has taken a leading role in combating South Carolina's opioid crisis, currently serves as co-chair of the State Opioid Emergency Response Team. Sarah, we know DAOTIS uh, provides tremendous resources for the prevention, treatment, and recovery of people suffering from substance abuse disorders. Uh, for our listeners and viewers today, can you give us, tell us about your agency's mission and, and how you serve people? Absolutely. Um, so the mission at DAOTIS is really to ensure the availability and the quality of the service continuum that you just mentioned, Heather. Um, it's really about prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery. And those services, you know, programmatic or direct services being available for individuals, families, and communities across South Carolina. Um, our agency is considered the single state authority. Every state has a single state authority on substance use issues. And while in, in our state, you know, DAOTAS does not deliver any direct services, we contract with many service providers um, across the state to ensure that uh, we have a system that offers uh, addiction help to any South Carolinian who needs it. Um, primarily, we, we work with the county alcohol and drug abuse authorities, and uh, this system has been in statute since 1973, and so there's a county authority for every county, and, uh, and that makes sure that citizens have an access point to services in every county in our state. Sarah, um, thank you, first of all, for being with us um, today. I know how very busy you are, so we appreciate you taking time to sit down with us for a few minutes. Do you mind telling us how telehealth has impacted the delivery of services that your agency provides during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I first just wanna say that without telehealth services, um, without the infrastructure that we have, uh, there may have been no services, especially you know in the early months, March, April, and May. We may have not had any services available to citizens experiencing substance use disorder. 
what is so fortunate is that this state has really prioritized telehealth um, and our General Assembly has prioritized that for the last several years. So our system, as I described it, really had the infrastructure in place uh, to use to immediately work with individuals and families when we were going into isolation mandates and things. Um, and so I, I do want to say we immediately as an agency turned on reimbursement of our funding to enable our providers to deliver telehealth and be reimbursed for that. We worked very closely uh, in March with the Department of Health and Human Services uh, and Director Baker to have Medicaid reimbursement turned on for those behavioral health services by telehealth. Um, and we're really grateful, you know, that we kind of followed each other's lead and made sure that the financing was available. Without that financing, I think we, we would have been in some serious trouble, uh, not only with the service availability, uh, but with the operational viability of our behavioral health service providers. Um, and so as we see it now, you know, we have counselors, licensed counselors, peer support specialists and others uh, working from home using laptops and maintaining their connection with individuals who were in treatment and, and continue to be in treatment for these diseases. Additionally, um, it was really amazing um, that we had this in place for the people who are on medication and needed to maintain that continuity of their medical care for medicated-assisted, medication-assisted treatment and recovery. Um, folks who needed routine check-ins with a doctor or nurse, you know, uh, to maintain that medication management of their recovery. And can you speak to the emergency order that the medical board issued? Because your agency was critical in expanding MAT to those folks who critically needed that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna mention next. Um, our, our um, Board of Medical Examiners did issue an emergency order to allow uh, prescribers who were treating addiction medically to be able to, to use the telehealth services um, to initiate that treatment with patients whom they didn't necessarily touch and see in person first. And this was critical because so many patients um, just have not been coming in to, in, in to drop in for treatment services when they need it out of fear of exposure of COVID-19. Um, so we really didn't skip a beat and, and that order was critical in allowing those services uh, to be delivered and, and continues to this day. How is COVID-19 impacting people who um, may currently be um, in treatment or um, people who have never been in treatment before but you may be seeing now? That's a great question. Um, there, there is no doubt, you know, we're, we're talking about, we're seeing it in our state, we're talking about it at the national level. Um, COVID-19 has certainly, um, I guess, put some hesitation in people about uh, dropping in for treatment when they feel ready, right? Um, we've seen our walk-in rates across the state drop dramatically. Um, and, and people have felt, you know, the, the need to isolate to stay safe certainly to protect themselves, but that brings on a tremendous amount of isolation. And with a disease like substance use disorder, isolation is, is the worst possible thing to, you know, um, to that disease. It really exacerbates it. Connection brings hope. Um, and so overnight, you know, we, we saw a lot of our mutual aid groups, our, um, our recovery groups, our peer recovery groups go virtual and try to really maintain connection with people. But we, we knew early on that with any isolation, we were going to see 
an increase with this disease, the prevalence of it and the uh, effects of it in, in individuals and families. And that's exactly what we saw. Um, along with that isolation, we had financial stress with uh, the loss of jobs and the changes in, to income um, across families. And with any kind of stress, anxiety, depression, change, you know, for somebody who's at risk of a substance use disorder, people are going to turn to alcohol or substances to cope. You know, people, I always say people only drink or they only use substances to do one of two things, to either not feel bad or to feel good. It's the only reason anybody drinks or uses substances. And in a situation like this, with so much uncertainty um, and stress, we've, we've definitely seen uh, an increase in our citizens' use of, of substances and alcohol. Sarah, since March, have you seen any surprising trends in overdose or specifically with the types of substances that are being used um, in South Carolina? Uh, Dara, unfortunately we have, um, and it's been really sad and frightening to see over the last several months. Um, we expected it, don't get me wrong, we knew it was gonna happen, but we almost immediately toward the end of March and April saw some pretty um, frightening messages in social media you know, the platforms of Facebook and Twitter and um, Instagram sort of deliv delivering these, what were intended to be funny, you know, memes and messages related to day drinking and, um, you know, mothers at home with children, you know, if you've got a homeschool, you know, these messages were, were saying, well, it's okay to start drinking before noon. Um, and, you know, messages saying, well, it's, it's okay to hide a margarita in your coffee mug if you're working from home virtually. When we started seeing this on social media, we, we knew that there was this social norm coming in that was letting people know, well, you're in isolation, it's okay. And so we immediately started some campaign messaging to get out to push back on those um, messages to really support, um, you know, nor drinking under norms and, um, and the, the recovery aspect and the, and the protective aspect of, you know, um, of mitigating that risk. In addition to that, you know, we've been monitoring um, first responders' response to overdose um, daily and weekly. And the opioid emergency response team has a rapid response team that reviews past week of incidents of suspected overdose. We, we look at this across SLED, DHEC, DEODAS, and some national partners uh, on the public safety side to monitor trends. We use um, law enforcement, fire, and EMS reversal of suspected overdose or administration of naloxone. And we have this data in near real time. And what we have seen, um, unfortunately, is that May uh, was the highest month on record uh, for responses to suspected overdose in our state. And it had been a steady incline really from the week of March 9th through the end of May. Um, so we, we were watching it. We knew we were, you know, between 45 and 50% uh, above the of last year in terms of the number of overdoses that we were seeing. Um, June, we think, sort of leveled off at a high level. Um, and, and we continue to monitor it through July, but I will say pretty much since we went into isolation, we have seen uh, overdoses spike in our state.
Is there any particular substances that you've seen an increase in that have um, surprised you that give you an indication about who is using drugs um, that, that would indicate a shift in the demographic associated with isolation? Yeah, absolutely. Demographically speaking, we've seen a, gr a greater increase in overdose reversal among uh, women between 35 and 65, especially in more recent weeks. Um, and, and really that, that age demographic across the board. Um, we know that the drug trends um, are exacerbating this, and that's because heroin is, is largely, um, largely less accessible. Um, methamphetamine is largely less accessible. Methamphetamine, um, the prices for that are five times higher than normal. There's really no less accessibility to, to methamphetamine, and we think that a lot of folks who, who uh, were using methamphetamine probably transitioned to what is available, which is counterfeit, illicit uh, prescription-looking drugs that are actually fentanyl. And uh, so we're seeing a lot of uh, illicit pill availability. Um, these, these illicit drugs are, are actually not you know, pharmaceutically manufactured, but, uh, but fentanyl. And, um, and they look like um, Xanax or other prescription drugs that people might typically use to um, relax or calm anxiety or relieve pain. And so with everything I just said about, you know, you know how folks cope with the current situation and the accessibility of these substances, I think those two things have really caused what we're seeing now. Fentanyl, would, would that kill you? Fentanyl is very, yeah, very deadly, a very potent substance. You know, um, when it's manufactured pharmaceutically, it's treated, it's, it's intended to treat, you know, chronic and severe pain. Um, but the illicit substances, these fentanyl analogs that are manufactured outside of our country, you know, have become increasingly available through the drug trade and available in our state and very, very deadly. Um, we've seen some reports of folks overdosing um, with even half of a pill or, or less, and that's how potent these substances are. Well, Sarah, something that we really want to talk about is naloxone, because naloxone is an antidote that's available to reverse an opioid overdose. And naloxone is available by prescription um, from a healthcare provider. It's available from a um, participating pharmacy without a prescription. And now it's available from community um, distributors. Through a recent change in South Carolina law, um, through advocacy, um, through your agency and others, can you talk about some of the efforts that you've undertaken um, during the COVID crisis to expand access to naloxone so that anyone who is listening to our podcast who is interested in accessing naloxone might avail themselves of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the first week in March when we knew isolation was going to happen, we ordered a tremendous stockpile of Narcan and we got that out to every county in our state to who you mentioned, our community distributors. Now, uh, for anybody in South Carolina who wants to know where and what organizations are community distributors, that information is on the Just Plain Killers website. That's justplainkillers.com. Um, and, and there you can see a list of over 
50 providers in our state organizations that have naloxone available uh, for free. Now we got out um, between 6,500 and 7,000 boxes of naloxone in that first week and our community distributors made them available, really pick up, drop off, hands-free, um, no questions asked, come get your naloxone. They've been doing some community events, drive-by events um, in different communities with faith leaders and law enforcement to, to train folks driving up in their car how to reverse overdose and to distribute that naloxone. On that website as well with the community distributors, justplainkillers.com has a list of every single pharmacy in the state that has naloxone on the shelf. And naloxone is largely covered by every uh, health insurance uh, package in the state. So this is really a, a benefit that can be taken advantage of by anyone. Um, and, and our aim really with all of this naloxone availability is to have it in the home because over 80% of the overdoses that we're seeing are occurring in people's homes. Um, and so that's the place to have it and to have, you know, a loved one, a family member, a roommate trained in understanding what overdose looks like and being able to, to respond with the Narcan by calling 911. So that's what, uh, I guess, as a lay person, I hear it called as Narcan. And is that, is that something you shoot up, up your nose? Is that how it's administered? Right. Narcan is the brand name of the nasal, nasal inhaled um, antidote. Naloxone is the prescription drug name. Um, so really that Narcan product is, is the fastest, easiest, and it's, it's really the most, you know, user-friendly of ways to get naloxone. Well, um, it's disturbing to think that we need to have it for free everywhere, but what a relief um, to think about that. As you were um, speaking, Sarah, I was thinking, who do I know that I may need to reach out to that I hadn't thought about, you know, maybe having a hard time um, with our isolation or thinking, you know, what am I going to do with my kids going back to work in the summer? We handled it, but now, you know, now what? Right. Um, and we probably all of us can do a better job of just thinking who in our network might need encouragement. Right. Well, elderly patients are often at risk for an opioid overdose, even outside of a pandemic, because they often forget that they've already taken their medication. Oh, wow. Right. And so that is um, a demographic that we always need to check on outside of the pandemic. And um, Sarah's organization has done a great job in helping us understand that folks at risk are not necessarily just the folks who have battled the disease of addiction, but folks who are just vulnerable um, right. members of our society. Well, Sarah Goldsby, thank you to you and your team at Deotis for everything that you are doing. Um, we wish you the best and that you guys um, press on in this good work, and hopefully things will subside soon with COVID. But if, if not, we, uh, we're thankful that you're here and grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Dara. really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Well, thank you, Sarah. We appreciate um, all of the good work that you're doing, and thank you so much. Um, and we wish you the best of luck um, with all of your future projects. Thank you. Dara, this is, you know, I didn't really think about um, isolation, mm -hmm. exasperating, maybe baseline anxiety making it worse. Right. Well, I think what's interesting, Heather, is that the opioid epidemic was a crisis recognized at the national level and in South Carolina in 2017. And there was a lot of work going on prior to the declaration of COVID-19 as a public health emergency. And we kind of forgot about it right. in our conversations, but thankfully there are people like Sarah 
who are still doing the good work that they're doing because certainly isolation, financial stressors, right. changes in work dynamics have escalated that crisis that was already there. The unknown. The unknown, right. And elderly patients, um, young children who are at home, high schoolers who are now at home, working parents, um, immediately an image came to my mind of parents who are at home working, struggling in this 35 to 55 demographic who might be tempted to reach out, um, who think they're getting Xanax or some other prescription drug off um, the street and they're actually getting fentanyl. So we've heard a lot of scary information today, but we've also been given some resources. Justplainkillers.com right. is a great resource. And I would encourage anyone who's listening today to take advantage of those because we want to be dealers of hope and inspiration. Sarah has certainly outlined um, resources that are available. People do not necessarily have to suffer in isolation or alone. There are resources available to help. Right. Well, this has been a good session today. It was your suggestion for this, so thank you for that. I learned a lot, um, and I and I hope you did too. For those of you watching or listening to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast, we're grateful for your time. We hope you will join us next time. Be well.